Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today I'm excited to welcome IHS Market Vice Chairman, renowned energy expert, and Pulitzer Prize winning author Daniel Jurgen back to the podcast. Mr. Jurgen last joined us on the podcast roughly a year ago to discuss his most recent book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, where he sets forth his framework for the energy market's future. Well, a lot has changed in the last year, which is why the new map is now available in paperback with a new updated epilogue and why we're excited to have Mr. Jurgen back here with us to share his thoughts on what's happened in the energy industry over the last year. Daniel Jurgen, welcome back to Industry Focus. Well, thank you, Nick. It's really great to be back with you and uh, and 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 your audience. Yeah, great to have you here. Lots to talk about. Just off the bat, I wanted to pull a quote uh, from your new epilogue. You say, quote, geophysical maps change very slowly, but political, technical, and economic maps can change very quickly, revealing new topographies that present multiple challenges and need to be traversed with care and thought. And you say, that's the terrain we're in today. So if you look out over the past year or so, what would you say is the biggest change to the map uh, for energy uh, that you've seen? The biggest change in the map of energy is what happened to prices. I mean, it was still, uh, when we were on a year ago, it was still in the pessimism of the, uh, of the collapse that had come with the shutdown of the economy. And the turnaround in markets has been you know, expected, but it's, it's come very fast. And suddenly you're having this sort of, I hate to use that cliche, the perfect storm, where you have so many different things all coming together at the same time uh, to disrupt supplies and send prices up to levels that uh, have big, impact on the global economy, and by the way, uh, disruptions in, in country and in people's lives. Yeah, so last time we, we had you on the show, oil prices, West Texas, Texas Intermediate, you're looking at around $39 a barrel today, as we record here, right around $75 a barrel, West Texas. A year ago, you had BP and some others saying, hey, peak oil demand might be here. Now in the past month, you have President Biden asking OPEC to increase Oil production. How did we get here? Where you know there's such a swing in from this demand has peaked to now. Gosh, demand is so high. We need to beg OPEC to produce. What happened? Isn't that quite surprising to have the president uh, actually going to OPEC even at the time when uh, you know regulatorily it's uh, putting restrictions on the domestic in- industry? So it raised a lot of eyebrows. But it shows that you know Joe Biden's been around for a long time in Washington, and he knows that high gasoline prices are not good for people who are incumbents in office. Well, what's happened is what you pointed. We've had the recovery uh, in the global economy, even with uh, the variants and the resurgent waves of uh, COVID, and uh, the economies, world economies, come back pretty strongly, and that means demand has come back pretty strongly, and suddenly you have Japan, uh, China importing more than 25% more LNG than it did last year and running short of, of coal because China's the workshop of the world and it's been supplying the rest of the world. So you have the pull in demand, you have it in Europe, you have it in the United States. Oil demand is gonna to continue to grow for the next several years, maybe uh, you know not evenly, but it will grow. And uh, at the same time, you've had a series of disruptions, including a few hundred thousand barrels knocked out of uh, the Gulf of Mexico that are still not operational. Uh, and, uh, and the gas market's so tight that people are now switching to oil. We calculate maybe 600,000 barrels a day of unexpected new demand for oil. And that shows up. Where does it show up? It shows up in price. 
Right. So who would you say you know, are the winners and losers here as the market plays out? Certainly has been a great year uh, to be an energy producer or the S&P 500 energy sector really trouncing overall uh, the overall market. But as you mentioned, supply chain issues, maybe it comes into inflation. So when you think about winners and losers, uh, break that down for us. Well, right now, of course, if you're a producer of a commodity, oil, natural gas, uh, you're doing much better than you expected in terms of revenues. And, and I think you know, the markets are recognizing that. Obviously, uh, uh, I, I know India's energy situation very well. India imports 85% of its oil. So an increase in oil prices is a really big hit for an economy like India. It hits their balance of payments and it hits consumers. It affects consumer sentiment as well as consumer pocketbooks as these things flow through the system. And some of this, you know, is a result of policies. The Europeans have you know, put pressure to reduce domestic natural gas production within Europe, but gas demand goes up uh, and uh, LNG supplies become tight and that reverberates across the entire economy. Of course, Britain is a special case right now with gasoline stations running out of gasoline because they don't have truck drivers to move the supplies around. Yeah, one of the other things we talked about last time uh, we had you on the podcast is not just the oil market, what we're seeing there, but also natural gas. You mentioned the shortages we're seeing in Europe. Another thing we saw was the Biden administration allowing uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to move forward, which in theory would open up lots more natural gas supply to Europe. Yet we're seeing these huge shortages. What do you think is going on here with with Russia and Europe and and, and these natural gas shortages? I think Russia, uh, I mean, what's happened is storage is low in Europe. Storage is low in Russia because they had cold weather uh, earlier in the year and last winter. So the, the supplies were not replenished. Nord Stream would bring more gas on when it stops, uh, stops, starts operating. I believe it's been finished. That's really a political issue because on the one hand, the Biden administration is sort of saying, let it go forward because they don't want to have a continuing battle with the most important NATO ally in Europe, which is Germany. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's still uh, efforts in Congress to put even more sanctions to try and prevent this pipeline that's finished from supplying natural gas. But right now, I think the Europeans would like to see more natural gas flowing into the system. They're having to shut down factories, uh, the, the shut down fertilizer factories that need natural gas. And that then reverberates onto food production in the United Kingdom. So there's so many knock-on effects of what happens when you have, whether you call it an energy crunch or an energy crisis, uh, we're gonna, if we have a cold winter, we're gonna have a difficult time around the world and it's already, you know, it's already at work in China where they've, they were going to kind of back out of coal. Now they're really desperate to get more coal into their economy. Right. I think both of these uh, illustrate these tensions between the, the transition argument. We need to reduce fossil fuel emissions uh, globally, but at the same time, we need to keep the lights on. So for, for policymakers, how do you navigate these challenges? I think, uh, Nick, you've pointed to an issue that is on the table now. And because, you know, in the new map, I described this whole, how we got to net zero carbon by 2050. And now this effort to really accelerate it to 2030, which has been a drumbeat. And you see so much in the media about it, but it turns out that, you know, you got to look at 2021 and 2022 as well. And in fact, uh, you know, the world operates we have an $86 trillion world economy that operates 80% on fossil fuels. And if you disrupt that uh, in the near term, you're going to have uh, severe economic effects, including 
helping to embed inflation in the economy. So I think for politicians going to this Glasgow climate conference uh, at the beginning of November, suddenly I think um, the playbook's been changed by what's happening now. And they, you know, they've got to focus on the here and now as well as, well as down the road. Yes. Yeah, so you've written a few times about this upcoming Glasgow conference in November, the United, United Nations Climate Change Conference, as, as this being an important, uh, I guess, landmark on the on the climate change um, uh, roadmap, I suppose. If you wanted to, if you want to say the Paris, the Paris conference, what was another kind of previous landmap? This this maybe is, is, is the next one. Why is this particular conference so important in your view? Well, there's such a push and the Biden administration is so strong in terms of pushing the agenda. Uh, but it's not like Paris. Paris came out with, with an agreement of 194 nations that said, okay, we wanna keep temperatures from rising two degrees centigrade more from pre-industrial levels, now one and a half degrees. That then became this net zero carbon, which is uh, companies, countries, you know, 72% of global emissions now are under uh, net zero carbon. Uh, but there's the issue to kind of push it forward. But there's not a single thing I think they'll come out of Glasgow. I think the thing to watch is actually on the finance side. Uh, I think you may see some very large pledges by financial institutions pushed to commit, uh, you know, shall we say tens and tens and tens of trillions of dollars to climate and sustainability. And then I think the other thing that's happening is this effort to turn financial regulators like the SEC, even the, the Federal Reserve into climate regulators too. And that's new terrain for uh, financial regulators. Uh, and it's going to be complicated to do that. But, you know, expect some kind of pronouncements coming out of Glasgow about that as well. So I think those will be uh, two of the biggest things. We should watch what the developing countries say, because they may not be on the same page, because they are, you know, they don't can't only focus on climate. They have to focus on poverty and economic growth, and they have different agendas. So, you know, I hear from some of the developing countries, you know, saying our agenda is not the same as, you know, Netherlands. We're not a rich country like Western Europe countries. Uh, we need actually more commercial energy to reduce poverty in our country. I've heard that in India. I've heard that in Nigeria. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, developing countries, you know, because you see these headlines, whether it's we're going to have high natural gas prices in the U.S. as winter comes down the pike or there are shortages in Europe or China, you have to believe that there's shortages affecting folks who don't get all the all these headlines. What, what is the status of energy supply in these other places around the world? And should they be expecting similar issues to what we, we just talked about in Europe and China? I think, uh, yeah, if global gas prices go up, oil price goes up, it's a global price, so it affects everybody. So I think I mentioned before, for India, it's a big problem. If you're a developing country and you happen to be an oil exporter, uh, this helps your uh, treasury, you're gonna have more revenues. But for most developing countries, this is a big hit and a big hit on, you know, economic growth. I mean, I think what we have to be worried about is what does this do combined with inflation to and the disruption of supply chains? What does it do to global growth? Because up till now, you know, the, the world economy, despite everything, has been on a very good growth track. But uh, we've seen a lot of, you know, inflation that may not be so transitory. Yeah, and fundamentally, energy prices underlie all these sorts of things. Cheap natural gas makes all the things you make uh, with natural gas-based energy that much cheaper, which has been a huge tailwind behind the economy the past 10 years, the, the rise of shale, those sorts of things. As you see us coming yeah, out let of- Let me ju just jump in there. This has been a big, you know, it's 
sort of now taken for granted. You know, our policy in the Middle East, even our policy in Afghanistan, is affected by the fact that we're energy independent. The U.S. is energy independent now, which seemed impossible a dozen years ago. We're energy independent, but the people, you know, are saying we're going to change, you know, right size our commitment, as I heard one senator say to the Middle East. You wouldn't be saying that if we were still importing 60% of our oil. So I think taking for granted, uh, you know, this turnaround in the energy position of the, of the United States should not be taken for granted. And I know other countries around the world, both friends of the United States and competitors of the United States, both look at the change in the United States energy position as a big plus for the United States. Our friends, countries who import from us, you know, we're, set, we're exporting energy to South Korea and India. This is a big deal for them. Uh, our competitors um, like Russia uh, don't want to see U.S. shale do well. But yeah, so you mentioned U.S. shale performance. There, there were some questions coming out of 2020, lots of bankruptcies in the space about, you know, how, how well can this, can this industry thrive? What do you view as, as their future coming out of this, particularly amid ESG, lots of folks who don't want to invest in space? Yeah, so you have two things about investors, um, and everybody who's watching this or listening to this is an investor. Uh, there are two, two considerations. One are the ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. The other is returns. And uh, returns haven't been very good being an investor in, in oil and gas when you have two price collapses. And also during the shale heyday, you know, a million, two million barrels a day of adding new supply, the world had never seen that much new oil come into the world that fast. Um, the focus was just on growth. Now it's no longer growth at any cost, it's growth at what cost? And in particular, you know, we talk about a shale revolution, there's a second shale revolution, and that's the relationship between the shale companies, shale producers, and investors. And this rev revolution is called return money to investors. And uh, capital discipline is, uh, you know, you go in the oil patch, uh, that's what you hear, is capital discipline because we've got to get money back. We now have companies with variable dividends who never had dividends before, and a focus on returning uh, capital to investors and um, so I, I think the shale industry, if we look at it in aggregate, has more than stabilized. You've had consolidation, you've had optimization, you've had greater efficiencies, uh, you've gotten more scale. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're back on a growth track, uh, but, a, you know, a modest growth track. Now, if oil stayed at $80 a barrel for five years, you might see something different, but... I think it's going to be, you know, I think companies, particularly public companies would have shareholders will be cautious. The privates, you know, private equity owned and so forth, for them, this is a big opportunity to step up activity. But I think the public companies will be more, more they'll respond, but they'll be more cautious because they have one word in mind, and that's called investors. Right. The gold rush is over. Folks want to get a return on investment uh, these days. No more promises about uh, how big the industry um, can get so uh, maybe moving on uh, uh, from oil and gas. Another big change we see in the energy landscape is in is in transportation. You mentioned the Biden administration's clean energy goals. They also have clean transportation goals, calling for fifty percent of all new passenger cars and light vehicles sold by twenty thirty to be electric. You've just seen the past couple of weeks huge investments from Ford and GM in electric vehicles. How has the map changed around? Uh, electric transportation for you over the Well, it's quite remarkable, Nick. I have a story in the book about uh, uh, a uh, young 
uh, electric vehicle enthusiast having lunch with uh, Elon Musk in 2003 and uh, telling him about uh, um, uh, electric airplanes and Musk says, I'm not interested. And then he says, well, what about electric cars? And he said, I actually might be interested in that. And a couple of years ago, Musk said that if that lunch hadn't taken place, there might not be a Tesla today. So that's, what is that, 18 years ago. And look at it's pretty big turnaround with the automobile makers. Um, but I think we, IHS Market, have quite a, uh, you know, we have about 300 people who do research on automobiles. And I think the view we have is that more likely about 25% of new cars sold in 2030 will be electric. Uh, there are kind of three big challenges. Maybe these challenges will be met. One is supply chains. I want to come back to that. Secondly, uh, is the grid, can it, what can it take? I mean, is our electrical system? And third is uh, consumers. Uh, how are consumers, you know, how confident are consumers? And, you know, you're seeing more electric cars and, you know, are people seeing their neighbor's driveway and are they going to get one or not? So I think those are the questions that are out there. Obviously, the automobile makers, having made this commitment, are going to go all out in terms of promoting electric cars. But the supply chains is what I want to focus on. And it's one of the things I spend some time talking about in the new map. And I think that's a very important part of the, the book that people should look at because what you're doing is creating new supply chains for these net zero carbon objectives. And these supply chains don't exist. So the International Energy Agency says that lithium will increase 4,300%, uh, cobalt and nickel 2,500%, 60% of cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic, the Congo. You can have these new supply chains and everybody's rushing in the same direction. And by the way, China, dominates the new supply chains, 80% of lithium ion batteries, by the way, 80% of solar panels as well. So all of that is there. Uh, and so I think the supply chain that we're talking before, in general, there's a problem about supply chains, but I think in the rush to this, you know, again, there's not a precedent for this kind of rapid shift to, to do it. And uh, kind of everybody's gonna be rushing for the same thing. And you know, people say, well, we should open new mines in the United States. I think the last time a new mine opened in the, in the United States was in uh, 1990, try and get a permit for that. So the way I summarize it in the, uh, in the new map is we're gonna move from this era of big oil, and you all know that headline, you hear it all the time, to a new era of big shovels. Uh, just one other number to mention, uh, one estimate is that for a thousand pound electric vehicle battery, you have to move 500,000 pounds of earth. That's a lot of shoveling to do. And so, you know, think big shovels. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, that big oil to big shovels transition, because I wanted to, to ask you about that. Obviously, you've done massive amounts of research on the, on the history of the, of the oil industry, development of this industry over time. And this is an industry that went from a supply chain that didn't exist to over the course of 100 years to basically powering the whole world. Are there any lessons we can learn from you know, oils development that maybe uh, give us some insights into where we may be headed as far as developing the supply chain in these other industries? Well, I hate to say this. I think the lesson is that things don't go smoothly. I mean, that's, I guess, what I, if I think about my book, The Prize, that was kind of what it was. There's a lot of disruption. I think what complicates it now 
is while that's all happening, net zero carbon, there's this other thing happening here, which is the growing estrangement between the United States and China, the rapidly increasing tension between the US and China. It was uh, the symbol of it last week was a nuclear power deal, nuclear submarine deal uh, with uh, the US, Britain, and Australia. Those nuclear submarines are about the South China Sea, which of course China claims as, as its own, and the others say is international waterway. So I think, you know, to me, maybe because of the framework and the way you frame the question, is that there will be a new geopolitics of net zero carbon. And uh, the issue of uh, relationship between the US and China is at the heart of it. And all the signs are that that relationship is, is going in a negative direction. Yeah, you mentioned China, and that, that was another uh, area I wanted to ask about as well. So you mentioned China's uh, uh, coal shortage that comes back to a certain extent to disputes with with Australia. They, they've shut down Australia coal imports, which ties into that kind of four party uh, alliance you mentioned a second you know, ago. Nick, let, no, Nick, let me jump in. That's a yeah. very good example, uh, uh, maybe a micro example, not so micro because Australia is a big exporter. But that's exactly an example of geopolitics uh, and uh, energy supplies. Right. Well, and for folks who aren't familiar with this, can you give us kind of the backstory of what's going on there between Australia and China? Because I realize maybe everybody isn't following it as closely as you and I. Yeah, well, Australia, uh, China had become very, shall we say, active in Australia in many different ways. And the Australians pushed back on it uh, in terms of universities and you know politics and things like that. And then in particular, um, Australia asked to uh, said we need a better understanding of where uh, the uh, where the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 came from in China. And the Chinese took that very badly. And the cumulative effect of all of this is that they have uh, uh, banned uh, many imports from uh, uh, Australia, which for Australia, China is a very big market. And so, uh, you know, I think no Australian coal and no Australian wine, <laughs> among many other things going to China. And so that's like a, maybe a, you know, a microcosm of what the risks look like going for the future. On the other hand, you know, US and China may be at loggerheads geopolitically, but economically, and on some economic issues too, like Huawei and telecommunications. And, uh, but on the other hand, we're still very connected. 42% of all containers arriving in the United States at uh, U.S. ports come from China. Yeah, so you mentioned China's impact on, on solar energy as well and how that's that's really important uh, to these climate change targets. One of the big pushes from the Biden administration is increasing uh, the, the amount of solar we use in, in our current grid. They just put out a, their, their solar study from the Energy uh, Administration. And one of the, the line items I pulled from there is they're projecting even under a, a base case scenario, so where they don't you know, there's no uh, government involvement. They're expecting a 7x increase uh, in solar production or solar uh, you know, deployment on the grid by 2050. But that comes amid the supply of solar comes from China. So how do you think about you know, uh, the speed at which we'll see solar development uh, take place and also just the geopolitical factors well, that will, will impact that? Well, I talked about a shale revolution. There's been a solar revolution, too, which is a dramatic drop in the, in the cost of solar. Uh, like 80% or more uh, in the panels. The actual total costs haven't come down because there's still 
it's about a 50% drop because there are installation costs as well. But I, I mean, I think that most of the new uh, electric generating capacity that will be built in the United States will either be wind or solar, partly on economic grounds and partly on regulatory grounds and political, you know, and because that's, uh, and because that's where government policy will push it. So it will grow, but we're still starting from a fairly small base uh, on a global basis. Currently, if fossil fuels are 80% of global energy, uh, solar currently is 0.6, six tenths of 1%. So it's going to grow from a base. And I think, you know, like in the Middle East, solar is really cheap. There's a lot of room to put solar in. Uh, and so certainly solar is going to be a huge growth. But, uh, and we'll, you know, they'll say, well, we should manufacture elsewhere. But the Chinese have this scale, this manufacturing scale that makes them the most competitive source. Right. And, there, and there's tension you'll hear from from uh, installers that, you know, if you want to put tariffs on Chinese goods to try to incent U.S. production, then you're not going to get the same amount of, uh, you know, transition to solar as we like. There's lots of puts puts and takes here. OK, we're, we're getting close to running out of time, so we don't have a, a ton of more topics to talk about. What's something we haven't talked about so far that if you're someone who's paying attention to the energy market, it should be on your radar? Hydrogen. Hydrogen, you know, and I was talking to you today to a, a banker who said, you know, if we used to hear hydrogen five years ago, he said, I'd leave the room. There's no point. It's now the hot subject. Uh, the European Union says that they expect to have 25% of their energy come from hydrogen in uh, 2050. Uh, you know, we don't have time to talk about the difference between blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, pink hydrogen, uh, uh, gray hydrogen, brown hydrogen. But um, there is, this is one area where, you know, the question, will our natural gas pipelines in 20 years be also hydrogen gas pipelines? So that's an area where a lot of uh, effort, and in particular, the Europeans are putting a lot of incentives and pressures to go to hydrogen. But at this point, aside from using hydrogen, you know, for making desulfurizing in a refinery and making fertilizer, it's not a business. So it's really talking about starting from scratch to create a new hydrogen business. How fast it will be, I don't know. But uh, I'll certainly say, if you want to say, what's a hot topic of discussion? Uh, it's hydrogen. Well, Mr. Jurgen, thank you so much for, for spending uh, this time with us. Just a reminder for our, our listeners, the book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Always love having you on and hope we can chat again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Nick. Great talking. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool, Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Daniel Jurgen, I'm Nick Seifel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 